for Thursday, October 29th, 2020. This is Did You Wash Your Hands? We're a podcast from WABE, answering the questions everyone's asking during the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm health reporter Sam Whitehead. Today, COVID-19 has hit members of the Latinx community hard, and that has implications for the larger fight against the coronavirus. What happens to one happens to the other. Um, and without being mindful of that, I think there's just, there will be no way that we, we can all control this. Dr. Paulina Rebolledo from the Emory University School of Medicine joins me to discuss why the pandemic has taken such a toll on members of the Latinx community and what the future may bring. That's next. free. And at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Support for WABE's local coverage on maternal health and mortality comes from Georgia Health Initiative, whose mission is to inspire and promote collective action that advances health equity for all Georgians. Learn more at georgiahealthinitiative.org. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention says Latinx people are more likely to get severely ill from COVID-19. That's likely because of a number of structural barriers keeping them from accessing quality health care says Dr. Paulina Rebolledo from the Emory University School of Medicine. She's with me now to discuss some of the reasons why the pandemic is hitting the Latinx community so hard. Dr. Rebolledo, thanks for taking the time to talk with me. Thank you. So we have seen for a while now more and more indications about how COVID-19 and this pandemic is really having an outsized effect on minority groups. But we've seen a few things as of late that have really drawn my attention. So first, we saw this report from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention recently, a report on excess deaths during the pandemic. They found some 299,000 excess deaths over the course of the pandemic. But the thing that stuck out to me was that Latinx people saw the largest increase in those excess deaths. That followed another report from the agency showing that Latinx people took up a larger share of COVID-19 deaths over the summer as the pandemic has gone on. So We've known this kind of general sense. Members of minority groups are harder hit. But it seems like the more we go on, the more we're learning about that. So so just reflect on that for me, specifically the fact that we're seeing Latinx people really hard hit here. Yeah, so I think that's one of the things that we've seen you know, since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, and particularly what we've seen in the United States and in Atlanta, is that in the early days, the populations that were primarily affected were elderly individuals, those having an exposure to nursing homes. But then we started to see rather quickly uh, more and more members of the Latinx community being affected. They tended to be younger individuals, and they tended to be part of like the service 
industry, so either construction workers or supermarket workers, uh, cleaners, and, and housekeeping. And if we've seen that, you know, from personal experience that when younger members of those families or those uh, household units, you know, they tend to live in multi-generational households where there's also a large, you know, higher density of, uh, of people living in the home. So either different families or just, let's say, construction workers living all together in the same unit. So I think we've started to see that that ability to opt for physical or social distancing is not a commodity that a lot of members of the Latin community um, have because of the living conditions that they currently face. And then there's also been challenges that we saw early on about the ability to access um, care, whether it's being undocumented or not being able to have continuous uh, access to health care from insurance. And so people tended to wait or didn't really know where to go get tested. So I think it's a combination of both overall uh, factors that are related inherently to the Latin community, but that it's also some of these like structural and racial disparities that we've seen along the way, why there has been such an affection and such a disproportionate both morbidity and mortality in, in, in our communities. You mentioned a few things there. I want to kind of dig into a little bit more in depth. And, and let's maybe start with something you mentioned there, just kind of the, the, the ways that communities live, multi-generational households, the kind of jobs that people have. This is something that researchers have, have pointed to across all minority communities that uh, increase people's risk, just generally the way that they live their lives and, and congregate. Yeah, so it's not only affecting Latinx communities, but it's something that we tend to see in communities of color, that there's housing uh, issues and structural issues in around where where people live, where families congregate, and just how these households are composed. So, for example, they tend to be composed not only of, let's say, the immediate family, but there's grandparents living in the household, or there may be extended relatives or even, like, friends sharing that same living space so that it becomes very challenging when, let's say, the younger son or daughter is working as an essential worker and then they come home to mom and dad or to, to grandparents and then there's very little ability to physically distance. And then the other aspect about housing specifically is that in addition to that multi-generational composition is also the density, the amount of people living in the household. And a lot of the times they tend to be in uh, apartment buildings um, where there's a lot of congregation and just less physical space. Talk to me specifically about the challenges that members of the Latinx community face when it comes to during the pandemic or even before the pandemic, getting access to care. So yeah, that's that's a very important you know component of challenges around COVID and just in general with getting access to care for uh, Latinx communities. And there's been a lot, you know, a lot of the anti-immigration rhetoric and some of the policies and people just being afraid to access care when they are ill or know where to access testing has become something that we've seen occur, you know, throughout the whole pandemic. And so there's been fear from the community about if they go to the hospital and don't have documentation status or they don't have insurance, could that be used as a public charge against them? Could it hurt or call attention to their migratory status? And so that overall distrust and fear of what happens when you go into the hospital, uh, what are the repercussions that are going to be to your family or to your documentation status is something that is just very predominant and very heartfelt. That's an issue I think that we have seen. The issue of immigration status, it, it comes up in 
a variety of ways, mainly in just how people here in this country, maybe they are not here legally, interact with the government, interact with government services. Is that a real primary concern for people, their immigration status and how they interact with the government? I think it is. And, and from, you know, personal experience with my uh, Latinx patients and then as well during the start of the COVID-19 pandemic with trying to actively enroll patients and Latinx patients and other members of communities of color into our treatment trials for COVID or vaccine trials, we've seen those themes being expressed by the community and patients themselves. We can't generalize and say that every single Latinx member of the community, their primary concern is going to be immigration. But we need to remember that while maybe that particular person may have a legal documentation status, they have somebody in their family or they may know a friend or a close member of the community who does not. And so it becomes something that is, is very personal for the community and for those of us who are her Latinx, just that overall distrust and a lot of the anti-immigration rhetoric and the policies that have been passed, which makes it very challenging for our community to seek care. I mean, these are not choices people are making. I think it's important to point out that in, in many cases, we're, we're looking at structural barriers that members of the Latinx community have to you know, living in different kinds of spaces, having different kinds of jobs, living different kinds of lives. Yeah, yeah exactly. Like the, uh, a lot of the, the structural situations are fueled, like this COVID transmission is fueled by conditions of poverty and economic necessity, where people are not able to have the luxury of staying at home or doing telehealth because there's mouths to feed. And on many occasions, they have one or two jobs and every member of the household works. And how are they going to be able to provide for their families or pay their rent if they're no longer being able to go out and do that essential work that is supporting a lot of the U.S. economy? That those aspects is out of necessity and, and the conditions of poverty and racial inequity that have been going on for many, many years. And COVID has really highlighted those deeply rooted disparities that a lot of society has chosen to ignore. Along with this pandemic, we have had the economic crisis that has come with it. We've seen millions and millions of people lose their jobs. My sense is that the people who are most disproportionately impacted economically, too, are people who are maybe more at the margins, people working part-time jobs, maybe people, you know, working for cash outside of kind of the standard tax structure. I mean, is that something that you're seeing and hearing from, from people, too, that, you know, maybe members of the Latinx community who are really working these jobs that, you know, keep our world running, but are maybe the, the first to be let go are really being hit by this pandemic in, a, in the second way economically. Yes, a lot of uh, um, the Latinx community, they're working, as you mentioned, under informal arrangements. And a lot of those protections that may be part of the larger scale workforce are not necessarily in place. So, for example, many of our patients who work in construction, that when you ask them if masks are provided or if they're able to are they still taking public transportation or are 16 people sharing the same vehicle? All those conditions persist and there's really no nobody to enforce it. And I think the other thing that has happened is that because of a lack of overall services and a structure to support these communities, the ones that have really become the lifeline in terms of, you know, providing care for the marginalized have been 
members of the community themselves or maybe from, uh, you know, religious organizations. And so there have the ones, you know, here in Atlanta who have been providing the personal protective equipment to a lot of the construction workers or, or other essential workers. And so again, it's almost become a, a responsibility of the community and there's really very little support from the government or from the state to be able to protect this essential, you know, service workers. I'm wondering too, about the ways that Latinx people might have a chance to actually interact with the healthcare system itself. Say, you know, individuals do come down with COVID-19. I mean, what are you seeing from and hearing from people about their ability to make it to a hospital, say if they don't have transportation or their, their comfort showing up in a hospital? This has been evolving and is a, is a very fluid um, situation as everything with COVID. It's not so much, um, you know, per se coming to the hospitals. It's where people get their information. And there's a lot of fear also about what happens when you go into the hospital. And a lot of them has been fueled with, you know, by misinformation, but also um, because we are no, you know, we're not able to allow family members to come in and see their sick loved ones as we normally would do when not during non-COVID times. So there's a lot of fear about, okay, once you go into the hospital, what's going to happen to the family member? Are we going to be able to see them? Or let's say a pregnant member of the community goes to the hospital to deliver their baby. Is a husband going to be able to come or the partner? So again, a lot of the fears and the unknown of what will happen when they go into the hospital. And we, we what we have heard is from patients with uh, no insurance that when they go into the hospital, again, because they're told they're very ill, they need to go, you know, we advise them as their healthcare providers to, to seek care. And then, then when they're discharged, they receive these enormous bills. And again, they don't have insurance and, and they're not able to, uh, I guess, address these uh, large economic um, catastrophic costs and the fear that arises and the stress overall to the family about what is going to happen when they continue to get these calls from debt collectors. There's a lot of uh, downstream events. Um, once somebody gets sick, both what it causes, just overall the emotional aspect, the toll that it has on the on the family of not knowing what will be the outcome of the loved one, and again, the, down, the, the later on economic and implications to the family from that hospitalization or seeking care. I'm wondering what solutions you're seeing out there that maybe are working for people. I mean, who is doing this work? What are people doing to help members of the Latinx community through the pandemic? And, and what does that work look like? So there's a lot of community organizations like the Latino Community Fund, the Vecinos of Buford Highway, and many, many others that have really been the frontline organizations who have been taking care of the community since the start. And they have been also reaching out to us Latino physicians or healthcare providers to try to engage the community and have informational sessions where we try to uh, dispute a lot of the myths that are out there around COVID and just overall for people to know what they can do to protect themselves within their social and economic constraints. The other thing that, that we have been working very hard uh, with other Emory colleagues as well as from Morehouse and from many other academic institutions is to try to bring testing to where the community tells us that they need it. So again, making it easier for them to get tested and to know what the situation for their family is. So trying to go to what we would call COVID testing deserts. So again, bringing it to where the community members on the ground have told us that it's really hard to access these services or where people may think that it's not that important and do a lot of 
education beforehand to highlight why we're there and what our, our objectives and our motives are in advance of those events. Here in Georgia, our state insurance commissioner, John King, um, who is uh, Hispanic, has really taken the lead or at least has talked very publicly about engaging with Latinx communities to do things like you said, you know, dispel misinformation, give people access to testing. Have you seen or heard that that has had any impact on the ground? And maybe like specifically the state's response, has the state been doing enough to, to reach these communities? That's a really complicated question, I would say. And I think, you know, what we have heard from the community is, for example, the aspect of testing. And so um, I will say it's gotten better. But in the early days of the pandemic, if somebody wanted to go test it, be tested, it involved putting in very personal information. And a lot of members of our community, they're just very distrustful about including their birthdays or their social security numbers. And a lot of them may not have that. And so it just become when you ask people to provide that information up, up front, then you're already like limiting their ability to want to participate. Or if, they, if you don't provide adequate information in their own language that's culturally you know relevant to them, then I think it becomes another challenge that even if we have these services, like people don't understand how long do I have to wait in the line? And if you just keep on getting passed from one telephone robot to the next, then it just becomes very cumbersome and people just give up. So I will say that I have seen that there have been, particularly in Fulton County, a lot of uh, endeavors from the public health department to try to engage the community and to try to provide um, information that when they seek services, their personal information, their documentation status will not be requested. But I think there's still a lot of work that needs to be done. And the other really important aspect is that in the beginning, people were very interested in getting tested. And as we have seen with all of the communities in general, there's been testing fatigue. And so trying to continue to reinforce the importance of those behaviors and that it does matter and that what the implications are of getting tested and frequently getting tested, what they are to our communities and to keep each other safe, we just have to do a better job of continue to putting out those messages. Moving into the next period of time, what do you think is going to be the biggest challenge, especially when we think about, you know, how the pandemic is really affecting the Latinx community? What what concerns you the most moving into the future? I think how uh, the pandemic has continued to drive people deeper into poverty and how without, you know, cash benefits or protections in the workplace having having improved over the, the course of the pandemic. I think that is is very worrisome in terms of what it's doing to families and their ability to have protections and ways to deal with the pandemic, um, which again just drives them deeper into the ground and, and away from from being able to to access care. So the driving forces that COVID has highlighted and how people continue to be driven more into poverty, into economic and social inequality. I think that's that's one of the things that we all, you know, we have to confront for many different reasons, but that's something that without having to uh, address full front, it, it will continue to have a devastating impact on our communities. We can see that there are certain groups who are affected more, more than others, but this is really what happens to one really affects us all in a pandemic. Yeah, I think, you know, what I would say or how I try to think about that is because of the interconnected relationship that we have with different um, racial and ethnic groups worldwide and, you know, in, in, in a cosmopolitan cities such as Atlanta, is that 
you're engaging with members of, of, uh, of these communities that are being affected. So the, um, as we talked about before, the person who delivers your food, the person who works in the grocery store, who cleans the yard or who, um, who builds the home. So those are the communities that are being affected. And selfishly thinking about it, if those individuals that may see that maybe members of their family are not being affected, they should worry about what that does overall to, you know, to the food supply and to the ability for a lot of these service Um, essential services to remain open. So there's really no way to separate it. I think it's what happens to one happens to the other. And without being mindful of that, I think th there will be no way that we, we can all control this. Dr. Paulina Rebolledo teaches at the Emory University School of Medicine. Did You Wash Your Hands? is a production of 90.1 WABE Atlanta, where ATL meets NPR. WABE's managing editor is Alex Helmick. Scott Wolfel is chief content officer. You can reach us at washyourhands at wabe.org. You can find all our episodes in your favorite podcast app, where you can also leave us a rating and a review. And you can find more stories on the coronavirus pandemic at wabe.org slash coronavirus. If you haven't recently, now might be a good time to go wash your hands. I'm Sam Whitehead. Thanks for listening. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.